0: We are continuing in our message series uh, in the Gospel of Mark called Life Starts Now. And today we're jumping into um, probably um, one of the most difficult passages, I think, in Scripture, certainly in the New Testament, a very challenging, uh, somewhat hard to, to understand uh, passage. Um, and so this is going to be Mark chapter 11. If you've got a Bible, I invite you to start finding that. And what we're going to, to read is... It runs the gamut from confusing to disturbing to empowering, and all those all those experiences. It's it's powerful in those ways for you. Um, If you're not kind of pushed by the content of what we're about to read, you're not paying attention. It's it is. I have found this a difficult passage to kind of grapple with, but. Before we even read this, I just need to—we to, to, need to ask ourselves: Do I trust the source of what I'm reading? Like, do I do I trust that God's um, word is trustworthy? That that I trust Jesus enough in what's been recorded? That even if what He says pushes my buttons, or even if what He says makes me feel uncomfortable, it creates some pondering. Do I trust Him? And will I listen and will I obey his word as I am, as best as I am able? Uh, You know, we can hear what we need to hear, but disregard it if we don't trust the source, right? Any parent of teenagers knows this. You tell your kid something, you know, I had this situation this week. I told my son something multiple times and yeah, yeah, whatever. Totally, totally ignored it. Comes home from work, says, hey, you know, some of the guys at work said exactly what I said exactly what i said and guess what that was a great idea what they suggested i'm like you don't remember me saying that to you well you know it's different like how so you get it you have to trust the source uh so that you can really receive what's about to be said all right so let's get into mark chapter 11 uh starting at verse 11 remember when you're in the new testament The first four books of the Gospels, so we're in the second book of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark. It's a Gospel, means it tells the story of Jesus' life and ministry. The big numbers are the chapters, a small number of the verses. Let's stand together for respect, uh, out of respect for God's Word as I read just chapter 11 from verse 11 to 25. Remember we had uh, dealt with Bartimaeus last week, the, the blind guy that had been healed as Jesus was approaching Jerusalem. This is the season of the Passover. We'll come back to the first part of chapter eleven in a few weeks. But um, Jesus has entered Jerusalem triumphantly, and now um, he's—we're getting to that point where he's just arrived. Verse eleven: Jesus came to Jerusalem and went into the temple, and after looking around carefully at everything, he left because it was late in the afternoon. And then he returned to Bethany with the 12 disciples. Bethany is a town not too far, just down the hill uh, from from, the, from Jerusalem. You go up the Mount Olives and on the other side, the bottom is the town of Bethany. It's there today. The next morning, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And he noticed a fig tree in full leaf a little way off. So he went over to see if he could find any figs. But there were only leaves because it was too early in the season for fruit. And Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Now when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. And he said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And when the leading priests and teachers of religious law heard what Jesus had done, they began planning how to kill him. But they were afraid of him because the people were so amazed at his teaching. And that evening, Jesus and the disciples left the city. The next morning, as they passed by the fig tree he had cursed, the disciples noticed it had withered from the roots up. And Peter remembered what Jesus had said to the tree on the previous day and exclaimed, Look, Rabbi, the fig tree you cursed has withered and died. And Jesus said to the disciples, Have faith in God. I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, May you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. But you must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. But when you're praying first... Forgive anyone you are holding a grudge against, so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Let's be seated together. I'll show you a couple of pictures here, so you get a kind of a sense of the lay of the land. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. So this is an aerial view uh, of what's called the Temple Mount. The big shiny thing in the the, center—that's the—that's called the Dome of the Rock. It's a shrine. Um, It's not a—it's not a mosque. It's a Muslim shrine. At the spot that they believe Abraham uh, was about to sacrifice his son Isaac, and so it's also the spot where uh, most uh, people believe that, that temples were built. Uh, the Jewish temples had been built. Highly contentious place. One of the it's a I think they say the third most revered third holiest site for Muslims. It's the most holy site for for Jews. Uh, Christians have a obviously have an interest there. So. You know, this is kind of the, the touch point for the three major world religions to come together right on that spot. Uh, what happened, there would have been a temple there. And King Herod, if you ever travel to Israel, you're going to hear so much about Herod the Great, King Herod, because he was quite the builder. And what he did is he built walls around... More or less in the place where those current walls are, those have been rebuilt since, uh, basically built massive retaining walls, backfilled it, and created this huge platform that today we call the Temple Mount. And, um, and so that's what we're, what we're reading about took place there, in that place, in that spot. You see a smaller dome closer to the front of the screen, and that's the Al-Aqsa Mosque, uh, where the, where the Muslims worship. I want to show you one more, uh, picture here. This is, this is the view of Jerusalem as you're on the Mount of Olives. So if you were to come down into, so as Jesus would have traveled, He would have come down this route. And uh, what we're, you know, is from the east. And so if you look to the, kind of the left of the picture, it's what they call the southern steps. So that would have been the main entry point into the temple area, into the temple complex. And if you go then around the other side, that's the western wall. Some of you have heard it called the Wailing Wall. But the western wall is the place of access for the Jews that's the closest to where the temple would have been. Jews are, uh, are uh, permitted onto the temple mount, uh, but... They're not allowed to pray there. Christians are forbidden to pray. You can't bring your Bible there. That kind of thing. I've been to Israel a few times, but I've never been on the Temple Mount because I don't like going to places where I'm forbidden to pray. Um, but maybe one of these days we'll get there. It's it's uh, kind of not the easiest thing to get onto there. All right. So that's the that's the lay of the land. That's the that's the scenario. Uh, let's just review this timeline again of what we just read. Okay, so day one, Jesus enters uh, Jerusalem and his, and his crew, his disciples. They visit the temple, have a look around. I think Jesus makes a plan. It's late in the afternoon. They go back to the town of Bethany. Bethany is where uh, his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live. So he's probably staying uh, with them. Day two, they leave Bethany in the morning. For some reason, they leave without having had breakfast. And so they're hungry. And uh, on their way back to Jerusalem, uh, they pass this fig tree. It doesn't have any fruit on it. Jesus curses it. Uh, they it go to Jerusalem. He clears the temple. And uh, the, leaders, the religious leaders begin plotting how they're going to kill Jesus. And, uh, and so on, Jesus and his crew head back to the town of Bethany. Day three, leaving Bethany again, they walk by that same tree. And they see that it's withered from the, the ground up. Thoroughly dead, and this gives Jesus the opportunity to teach on prayer. So that's the—that's kind of what we covered in this passage. The timeline here. Now, most of us, when you read this, we're pretty okay with Jesus clearing the temple. In fact, most of us kind of like it, right? Because there's a bit of a rebel in all of us that, that that just says, "Yeah, Jesus, you show him, you you get him, you get the establishment, you know, stick to the man." Kind of like we we just like that about Jesus. He really kind of clears clears the place. Um, the parts that are difficult to reconcile with or to, to grapple with in this passage are that Jesus kills a tree, seemingly without cause, just, it seems arbitrarily kills a tree, just with his, just his spoken word. I don't know about any of you, but I'm like, Jesus, really? Like, is that necessary? Uh, and then this promise, the other thing that's difficult, is this promise that if you pray with enough faith, you'll have whatever you ask for. And we've all prayed for things that didn't receive answers, at least not in the time and fashion that we expected. And so that can be a little hard for us to accept as a real true promise. So these are the things that, that we want to try to get our heads around a little bit today. Now to be clear, Jesus is not angry. Some people say, you know, there's, Jesus had a righteous anger and so it's okay to be angry because Jesus was angry. Jesus was not angry. There was, there's, at no point is it mentioned, stated that Jesus was angry in this passage. He was passionate. He was, he was committed. It was not an impulse. He comes the night before, looks around, makes a plan, comes back the next day. He's, um, he's intense, but he's, he's not angry. So be careful about, How we import our own feelings when we read scripture about that. Go by what's said in the passage and at no point are we told that he was angry. So these three big elements in the passage, right? The clearing of the temple, the cursing of the tree, the teaching on effective prayer, they do fit together and let's, let's see if we can figure this out together. The cursing of the tree, let's start there. That is what we would call an acted out parable or an object lesson that Jesus, that Jesus performs. And it's connected, I believe, it's connected to the temple cleansing. Now, before you get upset about the poor tree, it is just a tree. And, you know, no no animals were harmed in the killing of this tree. And, you know, it's on the side of the road. It's not part of someone's orchard or livelihood. So, relax about the tree. For those of you who are worried about it, it's okay. There's lots more trees. Um, they grow uh, over there. What's happening? The fig tree... Uh, considered by most people, or many scholars and so on, the fig tree represents Israel as a nation. So it's a symbol, you know, a, a national symbol uh, for Israel. And um, as Jesus had entered the temple area the night before, looked around, made his plan, the encounter this next morning, then it's a setup for what's about to go down. And so that tree is going to... Happens... This temple clearing is going to happen. Then he's going to get get to come back and deal with that. And I believe that quite simply, Jesus was making the point that as a nation, they had reached a place where they they looked like they should be fruitful. It appeared to be thriving. It appeared to be flourishing. Keep in mind that you know God has always blessed. The nation of Israel and continues to bless the nation of Israel today. If you, if you know anything about Israel, you know, they're a world leader in medicine. They're a world leader in agriculture. They're a world leader in technology. I mean, there's just so many in, 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 um, the armed forces or military. I mean, just so many ways that the nation of Israel, uh, leads the world. It's just really remarkable. And yet here it appeared that they, so it appeared that they should be full of spiritual life as well. That it should be fruitful, but it was not. Right, And it was out of season. That tree was not in fruit-bearing season. And yet it still looked good. It still looked attractive. And some have speculated that maybe it's just simply that the tree didn't have any blossoms for the coming season. Some have said, well, there's no kind of leftover hanging fruit from the previous season, um, previous harvest, maybe. But really, it's, we're said, it wasn't the season for fruit, so there's no fruit on it. And... I think it was meant to tell us that Israel had reached a place where it was, a spiritually speaking, a barren tree. And that the intent for Israel was to be an ever-bearing plant, an ever-bearing tree, producing fruit regardless of season. Now, why would I say that? Uh, well, well, we'll get to this in a moment. What fruit are they to produce? Let's start with that. And that would be the fruit of salvation, the fruit of people coming to faith, coming to trust God. And that would include gentiles gentiles are simply non-jews people are not jews right so for example if you if we're getting into the kind of the the growth of the church acts chapter 13 the apostle paul is speaking and he quotes from the prophet isaiah and he he says this uh, for the lord gave us this command when he said i have made you a light to the gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth they had a mandate to be a light for the world not to keep faith to themselves but to let that grow everywhere that that was their that was the fruit they were meant to bear and it wasn't I and mean, Jesus make the point it's not happening see let's consider what happened in the temple to see if we can make this connection so this is the this is the Passover season people are coming from all over the nation they're coming into Jerusalem to celebrate this awesome awesome feast called the Passover and when you come to the Passover you're supposed to sacrifice this perfect lamb and eat that with your family and so on. And so as you're coming from a crowd, crowd around, the, around the nation, you have a choice. You can bring your own animal and hopefully nothing bad happens to it along the way. Or you can just buy one when you get to, 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 uh, to the city, to Jerusalem. And also for your sacrifices. And so there's clever vendors who say, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll make those available here in Jerusalem. Now, it just so happens that they're going to be, you know, the price is... Elevate it a little, a little inflation, a little surcharge, a little environmental charge. Have you noticed everything these days has an environmental surcharge? Man, I'll am i work that in somehow. Um, And so they've like, so there's that that's happening. The other thing that's supposed to happen is that you have to pay a tax at the temple, your annual tax. But you got to pay that in temple currency. Well, you don't use temple currency in your regular, so you come with your foreign currency, your Roman currency... And what has to happen? You gotta get it exchanged. Guess what happens? Exchange rate might be a little elevated. Just, you know, it's a lot happening this week. So that's what's happening. It's, it's, it's not really fair what's happening to the people. The problem really isn't so much the, the selling of the animals and the currency exchange. The greater issue is that they would have been, remember that picture of the Temple Mount, They would have been using an area called the court of the Gentiles. The area that was dedicated to the Gentiles is where they would have been doing all this exchanging. All this buying and selling and exchanging. And so they've effectively pushed out the people that they were supposed to make space for. So, if you go to verse 17, remember Jesus, as he's clearing the temple, has says to this, Jesus said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. This was supposed to be dedicated to those, remember, who needed the light. Remember, they were supposed to be a light to all people. So this area meant for all nations, right, had become a dirty and corrupt marketplace, and the people who most needed access to God, the outsiders, were pushed out for the sake of religious observance and convenience. I want to say that again. The people who most needed access to God, think about this in our own lives too, the people who most needed access to God were being pushed out for the sake of religious observance and convenience. It's worth thinking about. So even today... Every believer in Jesus uh, ought to strive to welcome, to include, to, to make room for the outsider in the church, outside of the church, uh, building in our lives, right? For example, here, we're not just gathered for our benefit. We are in part, but it's not exclusively for those who are here. We, as a body, also exist for those who aren't here yet. That's part of our calling that's part of our mandate that's part of what's, what jesus has sent us out to do we we say it here the, the way we talk about it here bethany we say we're, we're on a mission of creating connections to lead people to a full life in christ so you create connections outside you welcome people you invite them to be a part of this fellowship you invite them to be a part of the body to hear the gospel hear the good news but you're also taking it to them We want this to be a house of prayer, which includes a house of worship, a house of teaching, a house of gathering. For all nations, we create as many options and spaces we can for people. Now, is it fair, let's go back to the tree, is it fair that Jesus kills an out-of-season tree just to make the point that they should have been bearing fruit and they weren't? And I would say yes. Yes, it's reasonable because he was illustrating that a people led by the Spirit of God led by the holy spirit have more than one crop people who are following god produce season produce in season and out of season see these people knew scriptures the prophet ezekiel this is one of my favorite passages in the old testament the prophet ezekiel had had foretold of a time when when the the light of the gospel, the river—it's described as a river. When the good news would flow like a river from the temple down to the Dead Sea and bring new life again, and that and that crops would be growing all over the place in season all through the year. And uh, I just put that. Let's put that reference up there, just so you can, if you if you can check it out later, you can write it down. But that this that this life of God would flow from the house of worship, from the house of worship, bringing new life. A life in the spirit that would produce constant, continuous supply of a harvest of fruit. The apostle Paul picked up on it in a letter to his protege, Pastor Timothy. T- Pastor Timothy was the guy that he put him in charge of selecting elders in the church in Ephesus. That's how they did it. That's the kind of the biblical pattern. The apostle points a leader. The leader points the, the elders. And that, that's how. That's the kind of the biblical way. And as uh, as Paul's kind of teaching him. He writes this to, to Timothy. He says, Timothy, preach the word. Be prepared. These these words. In season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. That's a good uh, pastoral job description. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with careful instruction and patience. The point of the tree then is that a believer seeks to bear fruit. Listen. As a believer, we seek to bear fruit in every season of our lives. And it's done by the power of the Holy Spirit. That fruit includes, like I said, making room in as many ways as possible for the lost, for the prodigal, for the seeker, for the believer to find a way into the house. They weren't doing that. They had they had pushed, they had filled the space that was meant for all nations. They had filled that space... With this marketplace that he said is a den of thieves. It's corrupt. If you're wondering how this can make sense in your life, start by writing this down. Be fruitful in every season. Be fruitful in every season. You know, you're, we're on all the time. And the nation of God's own people was not doing that. They were not bearing the fruit of salvation. They were, they were not leading people to faith in God, in all places. Our desire is that we be fruitful in every season. And as you, as you watch for that, you say, could I be fruitful in this day in my classroom? Could I be fruitful in this day in my workplace? Could I be, be fruitful in this, uh, you know, in my home, in my recreation, on my ball team, wherever it is? Could I be fruitful in leading people to a place of faith in God? Now, one more time back to the tree. Jesus was not angry that it had no figs. He was making the point that we can expect God's people to be perennially that's a good word, right perennially fruitful, making the gospel accessible and known in every season. So ask yourself questions like this: What kind of tree am I? Or maybe you do it this way. I'll ask my wife later this question, and you can ask someone close to you this question: What kind of fruit do I bear?" What kind of fruit is coming off my tree? And is it just once in a while or is it often? And is it is it good fruit? Is it helpful fruit? Is it available in season and out of season? We want to be that kind of tree. What kind of fruit do I bear? Now, on day three, if they've been to the temple twice, now day three they're going back. They passed this tree 24 hours after they've, they went by it after Jesus cursed it. The disciples are shocked that it's already dead. If you sever a tree's roots, um, you know, I was, I was, uh, there's a place where I drive quite often and, and, um, the, it's by a farm and there were several, I don't know if they were fig trees or some really like healthy looking trees. And the guy took a, a furrow plow and, and carved around each of the tree and, and broke up the roots. And I thought, okay, I know what he's up to. he's... He's trying to kill that tree, and that happened probably in September, and it was only this week that I saw those trees got cut down, but they stayed green for a little bit, and then slowly they started to dry up and wither until finally they're good and dead. Jesus gets that in 24 hours. So you know it's a miraculous moment. Um, and the disciples, of course, are shocked. Uh, they, they just can't believe it. And so now it becomes a teaching moment on the power of prayer and, and probably the toughest part of this whole passage to deal with because Jesus says this in verse 24. I tell you, you can pray for anything and if you believe that you have received it, it will be yours. Interesting use of the, you have received it, past tense, will be yours, future tense. Just because you've received something doesn't mean you say you have it yet. You don't... It's really uh, hope-inducing when we do that. But you've prayed for lots of things with all the faith you could muster and you didn't receive it yet. So how do you make sense of this? And who's to blame? Is it Jesus' fault? Did he not, you know, is it a false promise? Is it your fault for not having enough faith? What? What is it? Well, Jesus, first of all, doesn't put a deadline on when that will be received, when that's coming. Some of you prayed for things. I have a, a pastor friend, we were just talking about something. He's been praying, he prayed 14 years for this thing and the Lord's finally answering that prayer. doesn't necessarily happen immediately. So maybe it's a matter of time. And for sure, God knows better than we do what we need. So he may say, I know what you're asking for, but I'm going to give you what you really need. So there's that. We don't always ask according to God's will, if we're honest about that. But but there's more to this too. And this passage is going to challenge us on what prayer is and what prayer looks like. Go back to verse 14. He writes this. Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat your fruit again. And the disciples heard him say it. Okay, so who's Jesus speaking to right there? Who's Jesus speaking to? The tree. Jesus is speaking to the tree. Well, that doesn't really fit my understanding of prayer. does that? Would you, yeah, and we've been told that prayer is a conversation with God. Jesus is speaking to the tree. And yet, in verse 23 then, Jesus says you can speak to the mountain and it'll be thrown into the sea on a clear day. Actually, from, from the Mount of Olives, on a clear day, you can actually see the Dead Sea from there. The mountain, of course, is symbolic of those big immovable issues in our lives. We usually speak to God About the mountain, but maybe we ought to be speaking to the mountain about God. We speak to the, we speak to God about our mountains, but we're being taught to speak to our mountains about God. Verse 23, the first part of verse 23, I tell you the truth. You can say to this mountain, may you be lifted up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. You can say to the mountain, is that a prayer speaking to the mountain? Well, it must be a prayer because then in verse 24, Jesus goes on to say, I tell you, you can pray for anything. And if you believe that you've received it, it will be yours. And he's referring to what happened in verse 14, right? It turns out verse 14 is really a prayer, a word, a word spoken with authority, a, a commanding word of authority to the tree. Verse 14 again, right? Jesus said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard him say it. Don't limit, friends, don't limit God to what you think prayer ought to look like. Speak to that mountain in your life. Speak to that broken relationship. Speak to that cancer. Speak to that debt. Speak to that, whatever that hopeless case is in your life, speak it with authority Because Jesus is saying, this is prayer. Speak to the mountain. Speak to the tree. Whatever you speak to, it's not only speaking to God about the mountain. It's very challenging for us. And yet, no, there are two conditions that Jesus does leave us with in this passage about prayer. And the first condition is this. It's the condition of expectation. You must really believe it will happen and have no doubt in your heart. We've talked a lot about this lately in the last few months about praying effectively, praying with expectation, praying with confidence that God hears and answers, really believing, not having doubt. And a a, a crazy thing happens when you go all in with faith. The answer to the prayer becomes less important than the relationship that develops with God, the confidence that you gain in Christ. Suddenly the answer is not really so important I mean, I've heard this so many times, people going through a major trial, maybe it's health or something, and as they're going through this, they're saying, you know, I I didn't want it this way, and I thought I would be healed by now, and yet, man, I've just learned so much, and God has just worked in my life, or He's spoken so much to me, and i gained so much in Him. It's really amazing how that happens. So the answer itself becomes less crucial. So we grow in our ability to, to trust God's greater purpose, His higher answers. The fact that, that He knows what we need better than we do may not be what we even ask for. We develop, we've talked about this in the past, we develop a sort of a no-matter-what faith. I'm going to trust you, God, no matter what. But it's a condition of expectation. Do you, do you expect that God's going to answer when you pray? Or do you find yourself always hedging your bet? God, I'm, going to, I'm praying about this, but whatever, Lord. Or do you say, God, I'm all in. I trust you on this. The second condition is the condition of forgiveness. But when you're praying, Jesus says, first forgive anyone you're holding a grudge against so that your Father in heaven will forgive your sins too. Unforgiveness toward others honestly sucks the spiritual life right out of you. It blocks your prayers. It gets between you and God. It hardens your heart. It's not forgive anyone who says, I'm sorry. It's not forgive anyone who's paid back what they owe you. If you have harbored unforgiveness, a grudge, bitterness, toward anyone, whether they're dead or alive, whether you have contact or no contact, you simply will not move forward in any, spiritually, in any significant way until you forgive. It's, it's, a, it's a kingdom principle. Unforgiveness is going to hold you back and silence your prayers. Forgiveness... Look, to forgive someone is not to excuse their behavior. It's not to say what they did was okay. Forgiveness does not even necessarily mean you're going to be back in a relationship with a person if it's been, you know, abusive to you or, or in other ways harmful to you. It doesn't mean that you forgive, that you go back and take on that mistreatment again. Forgiveness releases the debt that they owe you so they They no longer have that hold in your life. Forgiveness is trusting God to deal justice, to handle it, to resolve it, to take care of it. And forgiveness may not happen immediately. I was having a conversation with someone just a couple weeks ago, about forgiveness often has kind of layers to it. You forgive someone, you think you've dealt with it, and then something triggers it again. You say, whoa. Well, that's God saying, this one goes a little deeper. I'm want i going to deal with this, you know, one layer of the onion at a time. And you come back and say, God, I release that person from that debt. I release what they owe me. I release them from the harm they caused to me. I forgive them. And you get through that and all of a sudden you go another layer down and something triggers again. You think, whoa, God, I choose to forgive. I choose to release. I'm not going to hold that over them. You'll know you've gotten to that place of forgiveness when you can pray for that person. You can pray, not, you know, pray harm to them, but pray blessing to them. God, it really hurts when I think about what that person did to me. But I want to release it and God, pray your blessing on them. Some of you haven't forgiven yourself. Some of you haven't released that debt you owe to yourself. Ah, that dumb mistake I made, that dumb relationship I was in, that... Stupid financial decision I made. Those things that I said to my spouse. And you just keep beating yourself up. And God's for, God wants to forgive you, but you've got to say, Jesus, I actually forgive myself. To release it. Release it. Release it. Jesus says it's a condition of your prayers. Release it. Release. You think, but I can't, Brian. It was too much. It's too hard. It's, it's way too deep. You don't understand. My situation is different. I, I understand your situation is different, but it's forgiveness is forgiveness. And until you release that, it's gonna have power over you. It's gonna hold you tight. You think you're punishing that person by not forgiving them. But they're actually punishing you because they still have a power in your life. They're still controlling you. And you can say, God, I'm going to release. Some of you have to release, release, forgive one another. You're sitting with your with a family member or a spouse today and there's some things that have happened and you haven't, you're getting along okay, but you haven't actually forgiven for something that was said or done years ago, months ago, weeks ago, hours ago. Maybe it was this morning on the way to church. That happens a lot. We come in separate cars. helps with that. Say, God, I'm going to forgive. Forgiveness is a choice. Some of you feel like, well, if God does this or if this person does that, then I'll forgive. No, it's a decision you make to release the debt and forgive. Well, I'm going to invite worship team, Josh, and the team, if you guys would come back. I... I think we could spend many, many, many hours on this passage. And today was a little more um, academic than we typically are. I don't want you to be afraid of the challenging parts of Scripture. I don't want you to be overly baffled by it. Let's be honest. God's Word is so deep and rich. We're never going to fully plumb the depths of it. We're never fully going to understand all of it. We're just, we're just scratching the surface. I get that. I don't want you to be afraid of what God wants to teach us because His Word can be trusted and He wants you to live in confidence and live in freedom and, and that happens when we really pursue these two things when we seek to be fruitful in every season say, God, I'm just going to be fruitful whatever place you've put me in whether, whether I'm, a, whether I'm a, a, a CEO of a company whether I'm a teacher in the classroom whether I'm a, 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 you know, a, teach, I'm a parent at home whatever I am God, I'm going to be fruitful where I am in every season. And the other thing is to pray with expectation and forgiveness. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that um, we have these great passages of Scripture. Some of them are hard and challenging in Jesus. There's so much that we, we have yet to fully grasp, but you're inviting us to a level of trust in you that most of us have never really tasted. And Jesus, we choose to believe that your word is true and that your promises are true. God, I pray that you would make us people who pray with abandon, who speak to our mountains with confidence, with authority, that we're not afraid to speak to those issues, those problems in our life. God, that we'd be people who who pray with an expectation of your action and and who pray with a soft heart of forgiveness toward those that have harmed us just as we receive your forgiveness for the ways we have rebelled against you. Lord, we want to be people who participate in the house of prayer for all nations, welcoming those around us, those who haven't even been part of our lives yet. We thank you for these, uh, these challenges, these truths from your word today. We love you, Lord. Amen.